everybody. Welcome to Fitz on Fantasy. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. Find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. And here we are together just days after the conclusion of the 2022 NFL Draft, which continues to be the greatest event in the sporting world that involves no physical exertion whatsoever. Well, unless you count Devin Lloyd bear-hugging NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and lifting the commish completely off his feet. But the NFL Draft is still comfortably ahead of college basketball selection Sunday in terms of mostly exertion-free sporting events. So I actually went to this year's NFL Draft in Las Vegas. Two of my friends and I had planned to go in 2020, but then COVID-19 delayed things quite a bit. But we made it to the Vegas Draft two years later. And here's what I will say about attending an NFL Draft in person. It's something that every football fan should do at least once. The NFL puts on quite a show. The pageantry at these things is remarkable. So on Thursday, my two friends and I met up with another friend of ours who was only staying for one day, but he just so happens to be a Green Bay Packers season ticket holder, or I guess a Green Bay Packers season ticket member, as the NFL prefers to call these people for some reason. And he won a fan lottery to get two tickets into the theater. There are 25 season ticket members from every team representing uh, the entire NFL galaxy inside the theater. Uh, My friend was supposed to come with his high school-aged son, but his son couldn't make it because of school obligations. So the friend asked me to join him in the theater, and my other two friends insisted that I did go and meet them afterwards. So there I was in a section uh, with these other Packer fans all dressed in green and gold. I was wearing my Charles Woodson jersey, which made me popular with some of the Raiders fans we encountered last weekend. We had Vikings fans behind us, Lions fans next to us, uh, Bears fans, kitty corner behind us and to our left. It is like Halloween at uh, the draft because everyone is so dressed up. Now, at minimum, people are wearing team jerseys like I was. But as you saw on television, there are people who go all out, full costume, makeup, spiky shoulder pads, unicorn costumes, whatever. It is basically Halloween, Comic-Con, and an NFL Sunday all rolled into one. There was a house band playing in between picks. That was pretty cool, but I did miss the analysis. I missed seeing the highlights as these guys were picked. Uh, You don't get that when you're there in person unless you stream it on your phone. My phone battery died about 10 picks into round one, so I didn't even get the full details of the trades involving Hollywood Brown and A.J. Brown until after we left the theater and met my friends at the beer tent next door. And I don't know, the lack of information was somewhat frustrating. Most years I'm sitting there watching the NFL Network's draft coverage. I've got the Fantasy Pros live stream on a tablet while I'm texting and tweeting and looking up scouting reports. It's just a totally different experience Uh, Being there in person is closer to going to a Broadway show than my normal draft experience. But again, I think it's something every fan has to do once. So for the other two days, Friday and Saturday, we went to the NFL One fan experience thing that was right next door. Uh, As I mentioned, they had this tent set up. They had tables. They were serving beer. They had a uh, big screen television in one of the corners. Good setup. 
beer was expensive, man, either 11 or $12 a glass. Food was pricey. I think I had a $17 Guy Fieri burrito for breakfast Saturday. Admittedly, not a bad burrito, but 17 bucks is a little much. Uh, but again, information dearth. Everything else was just spectacular, um, you know, but the way things were at this beer tent, it was kind of the same way. We would only see the picks, the feed that was coming from the tent. We did not see the NFL network analysis. So there would be uh, the picks, the house band, the entertainment segments and merchandise giveaways and whatever else they were doing inside the theater. No highlights, no analysis, no information other than whatever we looked up on our phones. But all in all, great experience. And again, I do think an NFL draft is something you should do at least once as an NFL fan, a bucket list item. I think a draft and a Super Bowl are the two big bucket list items for NFL fans. And uh, now I've been fortunate enough to have ticked both of those boxes. But now it's time to start breaking things down. And I am about to bring in my colleague, Andrew Erickson of Fantasy Pros. He has been all over the draft and just put out his NFL draft grades. It's a great read that you can check out on fantasypros.com. And of course, Erickson has been all over the draft-related fantasy angles, which is what we're mostly going to be talking about on this episode. So without further ado, let's bring in Andrew. And here he is, Mr. Andrew Erickson of Fantasy Pros and formerly of PFF. Find him on Twitter at Andrew Erickson underscore Andrew, this is long overdue. Great to finally get you on the show. Thanks for coming on and have you recovered from draft weekend? I know you were busy busting your butt all weekend while I was out in Vegas drinking beer and losing money on video poker. How did it go? Did you get any downtime to sit back on the couch and eat chicken wings or some other good NFL draft food? Not really. No, I, I honestly don't even, it doesn't really feel like, you know, recording this on a Monday. It feels more like it's the end of the week and it's actually the beginning of the week. Cause I, I just feel like it was like a nonstop, you know, going after rankings and updates and articles from basically Thursday night on throughout the weekend. So no, but I'm, I couldn't be more excited. You know, this is why we're in this industry because we can do these things, you know, up till like 2 AM on Thursday night. Like I wouldn't have asked for anything more. You know, that that's living the dream, staying up super late, you know, writing these updates about, you know, these draft grades. Oh, it was, it was a blast. So, and, and I'm, I'm excited to be on the show. Fitzy, I am a longtime listener and a first time guest. So I'm very, very excited. Oh, thanks, man. Great to have you here. I'm very excited to finally have you as a guest. Uh, all right, Erickson, we have to talk about rookie landing spots, of course. And let's start with the wide receivers. We saw six receivers taken in the first round. Drake London, Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, Jameson Williams, Jahan Dotson, and Traylon Burks. And they all came off the board in an 11-pick stretch from pick 8 to pick 18. How do you have the first-round receivers ranked in terms of dynasty appeal? So right now, I have it as Drake London, number one, Jameson Williams, two, Garrett Wilson, three, Traylon Burks, four, Olave, five, and Jahan Dotson, number six. Now, are there any day two guys that you have ahead of any of the day one guys? Uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely do. I have Sky Moore as number six overall, Christian Watson at seven, and George Pickens at eight. So I have three second round wide receivers ahead of Olave and Dotson. Did you not like the landing spot for Olave and Dotson that much? Um, 
I guess for me, I, I was trying to like, I was really parsing through each of these receiver landing spots. And, you know, you can argue like, oh, well, you know, Drake London's going to get a lot of targets. Garrett, you know, Garrett Wilson has a second year quarterback. Traylon Burks should get a lot of targets. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like I can make the argument that all these guys could get targets in their offenses. Like, I, I really don't think that there's like a clear, like, I guess maybe the Titans because, okay, you have Traylon Burks there and there's really no one else there. But I mean, are we just like, are we, are we, are we like, burying Robert Woods like too soon. Like I know the guy got hurt last year, but you know, he still is a NFL wide receiver that, you know, commands targets at an offense. It's not like he's like dead. Um, and then the same goes for like, you know, Austin Hooper's the tight end there. Like he's commanded targets before as well. I, I, I just think that it's so, I feel like it's like, and, and this is not to point anyone that's it has trailing Burks. If you had a number one overall, like obviously you are thrilled. You know, you're thrilled to land in Tennessee because it should be a landing spot where he sees a lot of opportunity, but for me, it's like shifting my view on these players for their careers just based on, you know, a first-year opportunity where, look, it takes one injury for Garrett Wilson to see, you know, a 30% target share for the Jets. Like, like we, we don't know how Zach Wilson is going to gravitate towards these particular wide receivers. So, for me, with Olave and Dotson, it's like, you know, Olave wasn't super high on really entering the draft. And, I mean, he landed on the Saints. Like, why, why are we like, oh, my God, like, this is an amazing landing spot. It's like, Saints are a, a predominantly run-heavy offense. They've tried to kind of, like, bring back Jameis Winston a little bit, so I don't think that we're seeing the Winston from Tampa Bay where he's just, like, throwing the ball and chucking the ball all around the field, not necessarily being as aggressive down the field, and that's where we know Chris Olave wins. And where we know Chris Olave doesn't win is creating yards after the catch. Like, that's not his game. Like, he has to be used as a vertical receiver, so it's like, I feel like he's going to do a lot, have a lot of games where he does nothing. Like... And is did Alvin Kamara like die or something? Because you know he commands a pretty high target share in that offense too. And obviously Michael Thomas is there. So Dotson, I think I have him ranked there because I don't think that the market necessarily views him super highly. Even though like I've kind of turned the corner on Jahan Dotson, I've I've liked him a lot more. And I think that the the Commanders drafting him, I think, and in the first round, I think where a lot of people thought he was more like a back end of the first round type of player was. They're just looking for someone that's reliable because they really haven't had that in Washington. You know, Curtis Samuels dealt with injuries. Diamond Brown didn't flash last year. Terry McLaurin has, you know, some contract looming. Considering we're seeing these receivers get traded left and right, it's like, who knows if Terry McLaurin's going to be in Washington when the season opens? Like, just based on where we've seen these receivers move so quickly in the market. So I feel like Dotson is a really high floor guy that you can get at a value. So that's kind of why I have him ranked there. Whereas Olave, I feel like kind of has that same type of upside in terms of his fantasy projection, but he's going way farther ahead in terms of some of the rookie drafts I've seen. So that's kind of my process through these things. I, I do feel good about like London Williams and Garrett Wilson being in my top three, but I feel like, you know, team construction wise, I could see myself moving those guys a little bit around me. Jameson Williams is like really hard to like peg because you know that he's not going to do a lot probably this year, but it's like takes one game for him like going off for like 200 yards and it's like, oh, boom, like he has more value. So I'm really trying to think about how these players are going to be viewed next year. And I can't help but think, you know, at the beginning of last year's rookie drafts, you know, everybody had Devontae Smith over Jalen Waddle because Devontae Smith was going to the Eagles offense and he was viewed as the number one wide receiver on that team. But what happened in Miami? Oh, all the receivers got hurt and then Waddle broke the record for most receptions. And now who's more valuable? Waddle. So I just don't want to read too much into the initial landing spot and just like, throwing out all of my pre-draft analysis, especially receiver. I think with running back, you can lean a little bit more on situation because we know running back is more predicated on volume rather than the actual talent. 
Whereas receiver, I think talent needs to be considered a little bit more than a situation. It's not like these, t- these players also, you know, none of them really have great quarterbacks. So it's like, you know, who am I attaching my guy to long-term? It's like all six of these guys that were taken in the first round could probably, except for Garrett Wilson, probably could have a different quarterback in 2023. So it's then got a lot of moving pieces with these receivers. Bingo. Yeah. I think you nailed the, you just nailed it by saying that talent matters a lot more for wide receivers and the situation I think uh, is bigger for running backs. Like you certainly have to take the ecosystem into account for wide receivers, but like I stayed pretty true to my pre-draft rankings coming out with the post-draft dynasty rankings. I think I have it as London, Wilson, Burks, Alave, Jamison Williams, uh, Sky Moore, Jahan Dotson, Christian Watson, Pickens, and then uh, I snuck, I think, Alec Pearson as my wide receiver 10. It's at the lower reaches where I think things change a lot with uh, based on how these guys come off the board. Like Romeo Dubs could have been, you know, a non-factor for me, but going unexpectedly early to the Green Bay Packers. Like you have to consider that guy as a, a possible, I don't know, maybe late second rounder, early third in dynasty and like possibly even a, a redraft guy in like the very late stages of a draft, depending on the size of the league. Is there anyone in redraft for you who like, I don't know, someone you think could hit the ground running right away and have extra redraft appeal, maybe a little more so than in dynasty? I think it's, more or less kind of the same guy. Obviously we talked about like a lot of the first round guys. So Burks in London, Garrett Wilson, I think Sky Moore has a lot of appeal in, in redraft formats being in the Kansas city. It's weird with the chiefs too, because we're getting this like weird upside down analysis where people don't want to draft sky more because he's on the chiefs because of what happened to Clyde Edwards. It's like, no, like the, the landing spot, I don't think was ever a bad thing for Edwards. He just, isn't good. Like, I think that that was like the issue. It was not that the, I think the landing spot was good. Like he's on a good offense. It just didn't work out because you no, know, he wasn't using the passing game as much and he got hurt and he just wasn't efficient when he got his opportunity. So it, it seems like some like weird backward analysis where it's like, no, like sky Moore going to the chiefs is like good across all, all facets. Like, I don't see why you would peg the guy down a, you know, super mega producer at the college level you know, a good athlete and someone that I think can play both in the slot and outside. So I think Sky Moore definitely is someone that I, I think definitely has redraft. I mean, attached to Patrick Mahomes. And again, we don't know who is going to be gravitating towards into that offense. I think with more too, when you look at just yards after the catch in that offense, you know, that's what they did a lot of last year, you know, less about just chucking the ball downfield where I think that's, I think it's pretty clear that we could definitely see just Marquez Valdez Scantling in that role as like the vertical receiver, kind of what he did in Green Bay. But working underneath, it's going to be Juju and it's probably going to be Sky Moore. But Smith Schuster really hasn't been that yak guy, you know, since he's struggled the last couple seasons. So does he still have that in him? Like maybe, but we do know Sky Moore coming out of Western Michigan. He does have that ability. Like he can create yards after the catch. He can be, you know, Mahomes' underneath option. So I think that Sky Moore is in a good spot there. And then and Christian Watson with the Green Bay Packers, which I, I really want to get your take on, obviously, as the in-house Green, pa- Green Bay Packers fan about the Watson pick and then obviously some of the other receivers they took there as well. Well, it's funny, Erickson, because you were the guy who first got me pumped up about Christian Watson when we were on the uh, company trip to Scottsdale this <laughs> a couple months ago. And we were talking like after the receivers ran at the Combine. And you raised the possibility of Watson being a first round pick. And I 
sort of, I didn't, you know, think it was crazy, but like, really? He's like, this is what first round receivers look like this big, this fast. And uh, sure enough, he missed, but not by much, not by much at all. Um, And so like, it's interesting that he is kind of a project, a guy who did not put up prolific numbers against pretty mediocre competition at North Dakota State, yet he's going to this uh, system where he's got a very demanding quarterback who expects you to be uh, at an eight-yard depth if you're running an eight-yard out. And um, I don't know how that's going to go. I mean, I, I think Watson, from what I've heard, seems like a really good kid and an eager learner. And I'm sure like he and um, you know the coaches are going to be going over this stuff intently for the rest of the days leading up to the start of the season. But um, yeah, it's uh, I, I kind of thought they were going to make a move up to get one of the receivers, one of the guys who went in that eight to 18 range. And it just didn't happen. It was just too expensive this year. So I totally understand why they went the way they went. Um, but ultimately, I'm pretty happy about it. It was interesting. I like didn't think they were going to go for Sky Moore. He's just kind of not the type for Brian Gutekunst, uh, you know, didn't meet the height requirement. And I guess they're maybe a little more set in the slot than they are outside. Um, you know, it was just a matter of whether it was going to be Pickens or Watson, I think. Maybe try to, try to stay put and get Pickens or move up just a little. But uh, they made the big move up and like the athleticism and size combination gives him pretty appealing upside. And at minimum, I think he's MVS, basically. You know, a, a fast, a, a tall, fast receiver with some drop issues coming out of college. Like that's MVS. But I do think there's a substantially higher ceiling than for MVS. I think it's interesting that they ultimately didn't go with Pickens because clearly Brian, uh, the GM there has, you know, he, he's, he has no problem drafting guys from Georgia. <laughs> like, like considering right. their first round pick last year, Eric Stokes was from Georgia their first, their two first round picks, Quay Walker and Devontae Wyatt were from Georgia. So clearly they'd done their homework on George Pickens and they didn't end up taking him. So I know Pickens, you know, had a lot of, obviously there was like the injuries and the, you know, some attitude maturity issue things. And, and maybe they thought that was like a no-go with, with Aaron Rodgers, which I can totally understand. Um, and whereas Watson, okay, you know, similar size, obviously probably actually a better athlete than George Pickens, at least from like a testing perspective. And yeah, I I think that MVS kind of seems like, okay, yeah, at worst we're going to get MVS here in the Packers office. And obviously it's, you can't replace and the Packers know that they can't just like, Oh, like, well, we'll just, you know, this guy will be Devonta Adams. It's like, no, like it it doesn't work that way. It has to be, you know, a a cumulative effort, you know, across the board, you know, seeing more production from all the pieces around using more tight ends, you know, Alan Lazar taking the next step, maybe using Amari Rogers a little bit more. So but at worst, yeah, I think Watson is going to have at least that spike week potential, you know, catching long passes. But I, I have to admit, you know, I know you mentioned, you know, Dubs, you know, earlier, the fourth round pick, you know, th- those guys are interesting. And even the guy they took in the seventh round, um, another guy who just dominated in the FCS. Um, I think that he's kind of like a, an intriguing guy as well, because, you know, the Packers are like, hey, like, who's the best guy? Like, like, we don't necessarily care. You know, I know Aaron Jones got drafted, you know, after Jamal Williams, and they obviously went with Aaron Jones down the stretch. So. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see how things shake out in Green Bay. Yeah, Samore Samore Toure is that it? I'm not yep, sure Samore how you Toure pronounce. Samore Toure from Montana State, 
where he had he had over 300 receiving yards in one game, uh, <laughs> which was just absolutely bonkers. And then he transferred to Nebraska to kind of show that, OK, I, I can compete, you know, at the FBS level. And, and he was pretty good in Nebraska, too. So um, there was rumors that there were a lot of teams like interested in him and the Packers were one of those teams pre-draft. So it, it definitely caught my, you know, as I was like scrolling through like the seventh round yesterday to try to figure out like, where did these guys end up going? You know, in seventh round, I was like, that kind of was like, Oh, like, cool. Like it kind of reminded me of the, the, uh, Michael Strachan pick from last year with the Colts, you know, another guy that went in the seventh round that dominated at like a small school, but was like a freaky athlete. And, you know, it's someone just kind of, you know, Hey, if you have these deep rookie drafts where you're going fifth, sixth rounds, like, Hey, guy got drafted seventh round pick to potentially catch a pass from Aaron Rodgers. Like, you know, that that's worth a, a, a late round pick in my opinion. Yeah. The Packers really stocking up on uh receivers from the great plains. And uh, well, I guess dubs is from Nevada. So spot from sparsely populated parts of the country. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we've been talking about these guys and, and they are sort of under the radar potential contributors. Who are some of your other dark horses in this wide receiver class now that we know the landing spots? Like, talk to me. You got to bring up your your guy, your uh, slot man in Tennessee, and maybe anyone else you think is flying under the radar. Yeah, so the, the Titans selected Kyle Phillips from UCLA in the fifth round. And, I mean, he, for some reason, it's like, it just reminds me so much of when the Titans had Adam Humphreys. It's like a guy they just put in the slot, and he just commands a target share and passes that you just don't ever expect. You're like, man, like Kyle Phillips had eight targets again, you know, for like the third straight week. He's, he's the guy we're going to talk about. Like, how is this guy still not picked up? You know, how is this guy had not, he, how is he still available on the waiver wire? He keeps getting targets after targets because he's a, a really fluid route runner. He gets open. He had a 30% target share at UCLA last season. And, you know, he just never really put up big numbers because the quarterback play w- was really bad. Um, I, I don't know how much, you know, we're going to see out of the Titans in terms of like running 11 personnel. So I don't necessarily think Phillips is going to be, you know, a starter, quote unquote. You know, I assume that they're going to, based on the fact that they just have a, a boatload of tight ends, I assume it's going to be more 12 personnel. I'm assuming they're going to try to run the football. But, you know, I don't think it's outlandish to think that Phillips is going to be the Titans starting slot wide receiver. And I know that, and that's some of the, one of the question marks I have about with Traylon Burks is, you know, Burks had a lot of production come out of the slot, 77% slot rate at Arkansas. But look at the other receivers on the Titans. Like you have Kyle Phillips, who's a slot receiver. Robert Woods has played a lot in the slot. Um, the other guy with the hyphen, whose name I just, for some reason, I just cannot remember. He was another slot receiver for the Titans. So, and AJ Brown played only 33% slot rate last season. So Traylon Burks is going to be on the outside and he's going to demand coverage from number one cornerbacks, which he definitely did not really see that much at Arkansas. So I think that Phillips is kind of just in a very under the radar type of receiver that I think you draft him, you know, at the end of your third round in your rookie drafts, and then you can just flip him for profit because, oh, wow, like this guy caught, you know, 56 passes, like, and, and no one's really expecting much of him. And the fact that he's a slower receiver, I think he ran like a four, six, 40 yard dash. That doesn't matter. Like he's not going down the field. Like he, he's, 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 run, he's operating between one and 10 yards down the field, which is and you look at his short area drills, 86 percentile in the three cone and in the 20 yard shuttle. So like, that's all that matters. If you're a slot receiver, like what is your short area quickness? And Kyle Phillips has that. So I think that obviously pointing to the opportunity that's on the Titans depth chart, Kyle Phillips, fifth round pick, like, Hey, I'm on Ross St. Brown. What did he, what was his thing coming out? Oh, he's a slot receiver. Oh, Jared Goff. It's like, it worked out. So I, I think Kyle Phillips is kind of in that ASB type of range where he's someone that I kind of gravitate towards. And then the other guy is, is Danny Gray from the 49ers. 
just this guy is a, a burner. It reminded me a lot of Nelson Aguilar when I watched him on tape. And it unfortunately it also comes with like the drops. <laughs> like he, he did have a drop problem at SMU, but you know, a guy that started at the Juco level, he's got four, three, three speed. And if Trey Lance is the quarterback, like he's the guy, I think that, that we would see Trey Lance dropping bombs to would be, would be Danny Gray. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and Nick Westbrook Akine was that yes. guy. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I know like he was there and people wanted to like start him because all the guys were hurt and he did nothing. But yeah, that, that's the guy. <laughs> Yeah, the guy who was strangely fantasy relevant for a couple of short weeks. Um, yeah, so th- that is an interesting uh, collection of, of possible contributors. And I agree that some of those guys, oh, uh, I, something I'd wanted to do. I, I had just written down what, um, and now I forget which, uh, I apologize, which website this was from this morning. But I guess the early top 10 in Dynasty rookie drafts so far is uh, Drake London, Traylon Burks, number two, Garrett Wilson, number three, Jameson Williams, four, Chris Olave, five, Sky Moore, six, Christian Watson, seven, George Pickens, eight, uh, Jahan Dotson all the way down at nine. And then I think there's kind of a gap and it's uh, David Bell at wide receiver 10. So um, what did you think? I mean, Bell was kind of a favorite, like I've been talking him up as a like potential poor man's Anquan Bolden type. I mean, ran the, the glacial 40 time at the combine. But a guy who had been extremely productive at Purdue, better than 100 yards a game for three seasons, uh, Big Ten freshman of the year, over 1,000 yards as a freshman, an 18-year-old freshman. I mean, do you – and, like, the landing spot was great. I think a lot of people were worried he was going to be, like, a sixth or seventh-round pick because of the measurables. But Cleveland taking him the third and, you know, giving him a good quarterback to play with? Yeah, no, I, I think that the David David Bell, I, I moved up in my rankings after we got the landing spot with the draft capital. And it's because the Browns are an analytically driven franchise, you know, obviously with Andrew Barry leading the show there. And they're looking at the production from David Bell. And they're looking at how he was productive at an early age. Like, that's one of the things, if you look at the Browns' history of drafting guys, they draft young players all the time. And that's something that we look at as fantasy players, especially at the wide receiver position is looking at breakout age. Like when this guy was 19 years old, like what was he doing against college athletes that were older than him? Oh, wow. David Bell was producing. Oh, wow. David Bell was producing when Rondell Moore was on the field, like an NFL wide receiver that went in the second round. So yeah, no, his numbers weren't great, but again, it goes back to how are they, the Browns using David Bell? If you're having David Bell run streaks down the field. Yeah, of course he's going to be terrible because he's not fast. Like, like that's the thing. But if he's working in the short area where that's where he was used at Purdue and as a yards after the catch guy, I mean, it fits perfectly because you have Amari Cooper working there as, you know, the guy that you kind of move around as the, you know, alpha of the offense. But then you have David Bell working on the other side. He can move inside. And then you have the burners on the outside that can take advantage of Deshaun Watson's deep ball, whether it's Peoples Jones, whether it's Anthony Schwartz, those guys will rotate in and out, kind of taking the top off the defense. But David Bell, I mean, I would imagine that he's second in targets on that team and that, on that offense behind Amari Cooper. And, you know, Cooper's had his ups and downs in terms of, you know, how good of a target hog he actually is. So it could be closer than we think of, you know, who is the you know target leader and target hog in that offense. So, yeah, I thought the David Bell landing spot was really good. And he's one of the guys I think that it's really deserving because there were a lot of question marks about him. Like a lot of these other receivers that went in the top in the first round, it's like we knew they were going to be first round picks. So like we, we kind of like had that in our mind baked in when we were 
ranking them pre-draft, but like you had mentioned, like David Bell, like no one would have been surprised if he was a six round pick because he ran so slow at, at the combine. So the fact that he did go in the third round to the Cleveland Browns with Deshaun Watson, I mean, it's like, yeah, like we're looking for these receivers that have good quarterbacks. And, you know, when you list off all the first round guys, you're like, oh, like this quarterback kind of sucks, like not great. It's like David Bell has like the best situation out of all of them because he has Deshaun Watson and, you know, a pretty easy path to being the number two receiver, you know, on the Browns, despite my David and Joku love. But yeah, David Bell, I, I like that. Now, one of the big surprises of the second day of the draft was Tyquan Thornton going in the second round to the Patriots. You did draft grades, Erickson. What on earth were your Patriots doing at the draft? I mean, so many of their picks were just jaw-droppingly bad. Honestly, I just felt like I was watching like the Raiders run the Patriots war room because they would, it was like typical like Raiders picks where they like way overdraft an offensive lineman that everybody has pegged as like a third round pick. They draft from the first round, like just no, just not a care in the world. And then they draft the guy that runs the fastest 40 yard dash. Like that's such a Raider. Like if I were to tell you like, oh yeah, the Raiders drafted, you know, the guy that ran the fastest 40, it's like, oh yeah, like that's a typical Al Davis like pick, like total move by the Raiders. And it's like the Patriots would used to be the teams that would mock those other teams. Like, oh, they, they're not getting value. They're drafting receivers that are just being overvalued because of their speed. And now I'm sitting back and I'm like, wow, my Patriots have become that team. Like, they're the team that is overdrafting linemen at the guard position and drafting receivers solely based on how fast they ran at the combine. So, I mean, the Cole Strange pick was egregious in terms of a guy that everybody had as a late round two, early round three guy. And, you know, Bill Belichick, you know, what he's, you know, he tried to defend the pick saying, oh, well, you know, he was going to be gone by 54. Uh, but when you look back and see all the picks, uh, there were zero offensive linemen taken until pick 57 after they were back on the clock. So they picked at 54, which is where they took Thornton and no offensive linemen were taken between when they took Strange and when they took Thornton. So unless Strange was like in his own tier in everyone else's, you know, big board, then he definitely would have been there at 54 because, and that's the thing. Like, I don't like hate these players. Like I get why they want to call strange. Like he was a really good guard, you know, obviously played at a smaller school at the FCS, but a really strong and productive guard. And I got, I get the pick. It's like, they needed an interior offensive lineman to replace the guys that got rid of Ted Karras and Shaq Mason. But the fact they just, just didn't care about where they took him just is like, it shows a lack of preparation and a lack of awareness by the Patriots. You know, they're like, no, like we're, we're doing it this way. I, I was really disappointed to see that. And then just to do it again with, with uh, Thornton. You know, it, it's just, it reminds me so much of when the Patriots drafted Keel Harry, and then you see A.J. Brown and Debo Samuel go off the board. It's the same thing here. They draft Tyquan Thornton, and then you see George Pickens and Sky Moore go off the board. I'm just like, I, I'm just like looking at it in, in horror because I know when we're talking about these receivers a year from now, we're like, oh my God, the Patriots, like, why did they draft George Pickens? Like, why did they draft Sky Moore? They had them, you know, at that pick, and they just didn't, they just didn't execute. Now, Again, going back to not hating the players, like Thornton fits stylistically what the Patriots needed. Like they needed to draft, you know, a fast wide receiver. Like I understand that because they don't have a lot of speed because you have Jacoby Myers, you have Devontae Parker, you have Kendrick Bourne. Like none of those guys are like burners. A lot of them work really more at the inside. Devontae Parker is more of a contested catch receiver. So I don't hate the fact that they drafted a fast receiver, but it's like, okay, then why did you just draft Danny Gray at the end of the third round like the 49ers did? Like I don't get it. So, yeah, those first two picks were just egregious in terms of, we you know, where they were projected to go. Thornton was expected to be, you know, a round four selection. So it's it's just just poor preparation on the Patriots. And look, I think this happens with a lot of general managers where they just start to 
put together pick after pick and, and decision after decision that just don't add up. And it's like, look, Bill Belichick's obviously gotten a lot of benefit of the doubt because of, you know, being the you know greatest NFL coach of all time. But his track record lately with, with GM, like the moves he's made, it's just, I, I, we can't give him the benefit of the doubt anymore. And it's coming as, as a Patriots fan. It's like, look, like someone's got to take it away from him because something is going wrong here and they're just not taking advantage. Like it seems like he's out of the times. Like he's like in his own mind doing one thing when the other 31 teams are just doing something completely different. And Belichick's like, Nope, I'm just going to keep doing my thing. I want my guys don't care what I get them. I'll make them good. I'll make them hall of fame, you know, whatever. So I'll admit that I did like some of the guys they got later, you know, Marcus Jones and Jack Jones, a cornerback. I thought that those guys were decent picks in terms of you know, adding depth to the cornerback position. But even after that, it's like backup quarterback, two more running backs they drafted. It's like, okay, we got a good running back, Ramondre Stevenson last year, like in the fourth round. Like, oh, so like let's add more, let's add more running backs. So I just didn't like, I mean, all in all, I gave them an F because it just the two first two picks were just egregious when it comes to value. It's like if they had gotten those guys like rounds later, been totally fine with it. They and they drafted, you know, like Daxton Hill in the first round, like this versatile safety. It's like that screams Bill Belichick, like a guy that could play in the slot, can play outside cornerback, like from Michigan. It's like he was like the perfect pick guy to pick. And no, there's like now we're taking Cole Strange. And yeah, so yeah, long story short, they got an F. And that was the lowest grade I gave to any team. <laughs> so after you did the grades for Fantasy Pros, how did some of the other teams shake out as far as best and worst? Uh, just a quick rundown on a few that stood out. And feel free to grade on a curve based on the amount of draft capital, which you kind of did. I know you um, sort of based things on what people had to play with. Obviously, the, the Jets had a lot of cap- draft capital to throw around. And then a team like the Rams that, uh, you know, th- those guys could have, taking a nap in the, the war room for the first two days uh, kind of had nothing to do. So who do you think stood out and uh, you know, who kind of botched it? I think the bears just did a, a really bad job of trying to, you know, what are they doing? It's like they're, they're talking about building around their franchise quarterback, Justin Fields. And then they send their first two round picks on defensive backs. Now, like I don't, like they needed, you know, a cornerback, so they drafted Kyler Gordon. So I don't like hate the fact that they drafted him in the second round, but like, wh- why do you need to double down at in the secondary? You know, with J- Jaquan Brisker in the second round as well. It's like the offensive line for the Bears is horrible, and they didn't do anything to really address it in free agency. So you're thinking, okay, they're going to add to it during the draft. You know, add some offensive linemen. You know, there were still quality guys. I know Cole Strange was off the board, and I know that that may freak them out in the second round, but come on, like there were some other guys that could have potentially gotten in the second round. But, you know, they just went with the cornerback and the safety. And then, I mean, like the most egregious receiver. I mean, if it wasn't for oh. Thornton, like Felix Jones, who is already older than, than Darnell Mooney, it's like, dude, like this is just horrible. And it's it's funny because, like, you know, we all collectively, like as fantasy, you know, players, like we all collectively know, like, this is a horrible pick. Like, like, and it doesn't even matter how productive Vilas Jones is in his, his year one. Like, chances are he's probably more pro-rated than a lot of these receivers because he's 25 freaking years old. But the fact of the matter is, like, he's not going to get any better. He took five years to do anything at the college level for him to finally break out. So now he's going to take a step up in competition. Like, he's not going to get better. And I understand that, like, Justin Fields said that Vilas Jones was, like, a guy he, like, liked on tape. But it's like, dude, like he's already he's he's not going to get any better. Like we want to take you to the next level, Justin Fields, not just give you another guy that can just, you know, win down the field and and create yards after the catch. So, I mean, that was horrible in in round three. And then just the fact that they just didn't do anything in the offensive line. Um, You know, Fields was running for his life last year. They used zero picks inside the top 50 on offensive linemen. 
so I, I thought that was a, a really big mistake. Uh, the Raiders, I, I didn't really understand what they were doing. You know, they declined to pick up Josh Jacobs' fifth-year option. But when you don't have a lot of picks, like, I just, I can't imagine using them on running backs. Like, like you already have, you're, you're, you know, you're drafting with your hands behind your back because you obviously traded up to get, you know, Devontae Adams. Like, you traded him a lot, a lot of draft capital. So you got to be smart with your picks. You got to look at premium positions to take shots on guys with, like, mega upside but like zamir white it's like okay like he's a two down back josh jacobs maybe will get replaced next year but it's like there are so many other routes you can go than drafting a running back in the fourth round you could have drafted a running back later um in the sixth round now they drafted dylan parham was their first uh the first selection and i like him as a prospect but again he's not a tackle like they needed a tackle you know brandon parker their starting right tackle from last year allowed the most quarterback pressures per game and Alex Leatherwood was a guy they were playing out of position at tackle and at guard. So I, I think Parham's a good player, but it just didn't make a lot of sense. And then they just drafted a bunch of defensive tackles, which is like so Raiders that they're just like, oh, we want to draft like a bunch of run stuffers. It's like, it's just another thing that's not valued. So they just didn't take a lot of premium shots. So, but the good guys that I liked, so Baltimore, Detroit, the Jets, I mean, the Ravens are, I, I described it as like, they're just wizards at, at the draft. They just, let value fall to them. They, they make smart picks. The fact that they were able to trade, they fleece the Cardinals by trading Marquise Brown for a third round or, and a third round pick for a first round pick. When Marquise Brown is on an expiring contract, it's like the most no brainer move you could possibly make. It's like, Oh yeah, we drafted the receiver in the round, round one last year. We have, you know, Tyler Wallace is a guy that can stretch the field. Oh, perfect. Like we don't have to pay Marquise Brown. We can get a first round pick and then get Kyle Hamilton and Tyler Linderbaum who, we could be talking about this in the next couple of years. Like they could be both number one at their position respectively in the NFL, you know, number one safety and the number one center that the Ravens got in the both drafts. Then you talk about Ajabo, who was projected to be a top 20 pick. You know, he reunites with Mike McDonald, the defensive coordinator from, the, from Michigan and one of his old high school teammates and Adafi Owe. And then you have Travis Jones from UConn, like a guy that some people looked at as a first round pick, you know, this like ultimate run stuffer. And then he's available on the board. And just like the Ravens like, Oh, well, I guess we'll just take this guy too. Like, well, why not? So the Ravens just like letting value fall into their laps where just other teams are just like totally botching the draft. It's it just, it's wild the lines. I liked what they did. Um, and the fact that they didn't take a quarterback, I thought was kind of interesting. Um, you they were disciplined. It's like, everyone was like, they got to take quarterback, that take quarterback. But then when you, actually kind of hear about what Dan Campbell and Brad Holmes talked about with Jared Goff. It's like, they still like Jared Goff. So I, they found that there was no one in this draft that really would be worthy of them taking and investing into. And I think that was smart. So they were able to just like boatload with a ton of players. I love them training up for Jameson Williams, get a true, you know, wide receiver one to go along with Amara St. Brown. So they address quarterback next year. Like they have such a good building block in place. And the fact they were able to get Hutchinson, keep him in, um, in Michigan, I think was, was bonkers. And then the jets, of course, like getting Jermaine Johnson, you know, at the end of the first round when people thought, you know, he could go as high as like number four overall, number 10 overall. And they got like three top 10 picks and then to follow it up with, with Brees hall. Just, I like the fact that they loaded up on offense for Zach Wilson. It's like, you, ha you have to do that. Like stop trying to, you know, improve your defense, add secondary pieces. And obviously the jets did that to an extent, but they all, like, after they got their due defensive guys, it was all offensive players. It's like getting Brees Hall, getting Jeremy Rucker, getting Garrett Wilson. Like, you need to know what Zach Wilson is like now. And I think the Jets did a really great job of, like, putting the pieces around Wilson to get that answer. Yeah. Um, 
You said it. Look at what the Jets have given Zach Wilson versus what the Bears have given Justin Fields. I mean, (laughs) Garrett Wilson, Elijah Moore, Brees Hall, Michael Carter, Jeremy Ruckert, and the Bears give uh, Justin Fields Velas Jones the third, who... When that pick was made, you know, my my friend, the Packers fan, and I look at our friend, the Bears fan, and he just puts his head in his hands. Like, <laughs> oh what, are you, what are you doing, Bears? Oh, my God. That was I mean, Velas Jones is older than A.J. Brown. <laughs> like, that's like, <laughs> that's so bonkers to me that they, they would draft a guy. It, it, it's so bad, too, because we know that, you know, in that quarterback class, like, we know they're not all going to hit. You know, as talented as the class was last year, um, you know, coming in, like, we all know they're not going to be hits. Know with Lawrence Wilson, Fields, Lance, and Mac Jones, and it's like you know I think Wilson was kind of like the guy to peg. He's like, oh, he's on the Jets, like they suck, like they're a bad organization. But it's like, dude, like what is Fields gonna have to do, like to to get out of Chicago? I feel like he's kind of following like a, a Deshaun Watson esque route where he has to literally do everything in the office. He's gonna get killed, and he's gonna have to like force his way out of that organization because it just it doesn't seem like the commitment is there for him when. I thought he was like, I thought he was the second best quarterback in last year's draft, like coming out as a prospect. And I I just, I don't understand what they're doing. I know, man. I feel so bad for the kid. Uh, Now, before we continue with the draft conversation, Erickson, I have to ask you about your recent trip to Aruba with your girlfriend. Was there some greater purpose to this trip than just soaking up the sun and drinking Amstel's for a week? Yes. So I was able to engage to my, get engaged to my girlfriend in Aruba um, so now she's my fiance. So I'm very excited about that. I've been dating her for almost 10 years. So it was a, it, it was time to, to pull out the ring and, and get things done. So it was a great trip. You know, her, I was there with her family and I was able to actually surprise her with the engagement. I actually hired a photographer f- in, from Aruba. So she basically pretended to work at the restaurant that we had gone on, that we went on a date on. And the photographer was like, oh, like, you know, I work for the restaurant. I'm going to take some pictures of you guys and you can buy them after if you want to. You can look at them. And my girlfriend at the time, she fell for it. She's like, oh, sure. Like, you can take pictures. And I'm like, yeah, like, let's take some pictures. Then she prompts us to, like, go on to the beach because, you know, in Aruba, there are certain restaurants where you're basically eating, you know, at a table, like, on the beach. So, you know, it was right around, like, sunset. So, you know, the photographer, you know, prompts us to go on to the beach and start taking more pictures. And then, you know, she gave me like a code word to basically like, Hey, when I say I'm going to like fix my lens, like that's when you have to, you know, get on one knee and propose. And she's like, all right, now I need to just fix my lens one last time. And then one thing led to another. And then I proposed, she said, yes, it was a great time. And I mean, it was, it was like, yeah, I was on another level in terms of, you know, happiness, just being overjoyed. Um, And, you know, I think it was that exact happiness and just all the stress of like, planning the surprise proposal that actually suppressed my COVID symptoms because I actually got COVID while I was in Aruba and I had to stay longer for four, actually five days. So my fiance and her parents who were also, you know, there traveling with us, they got to leave, you know, on the last day on the Sunday. And I had to stay an extra till Thursday of the next week because I had to quarantine per the Aruba health department. So I was in this very small room in a hotel room, basically that I couldn't leave um, because I had to quarantine to get approval to fly home back to Boston. And all I did was, you know, I was grinding away mock drafts <laughs> and I was just like doing stuff like that. Cause I was like, I'm going to go insane in here. And, and luckily I, there was like a balcony area where I was able to kind of go out and like get some, you know, embrace some of the air. But basically I was living the SpongeBob meme where, Squidward is looking outside his window and he just sees Patrick and SpongeBob running around, like having fun. Like that was me in Aruba for like five days because I couldn't do anything. Wasn't allowed to go outside. Couldn't do anything. So 
Um, but luckily my, my overall, my symptoms weren't horrible. Um, so I, I was okay and I was feeling healthy. So I wasn't like sick during the quarantine time, but I mean, I was, uh, I was stressed cause I had to stay there and it, was, it sucked because like I had just gotten engaged and I was ready to go come home and like show off my, my new fiance to my friends and family. He's like, well, Andrew's still there. So it's going to have to, we're going to put that on hold for a little bit, but, uh, <laughs> definitely a rem- memorable experience that I will never forget. And something that will always be a funny story to bring up to people I'm like, Oh, like, how'd you get, uh, how did you propose to, you know, Taylor? And it's like, Oh, well, let me tell you the story. It was uh, a lot goes into it. <laughs> I'll say what a mixed bag of a trip, but congratulations to you and your fiance. Uh, you know, more bad than good, obviously, even if you had to spend uh, four days in isolation, but uh, an eventful trip to be sure. One other thing I've, I've got to ask you about, uh, Erickson, we had followed each other on Twitter for a while, but hadn't really interacted until you sent me a direct message via Twitter asking me about the theme song to this podcast. And it turns out that you're a big fan of ska music and wanted to know the name of the band and where the song came from. Now you're significantly younger than I am. And like the real heyday of ska music was back in my youth in the 1980s with the specials and the English beats, bad manners, the selector, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like ska began and ended with those bands, but the genre was sort of at its peak before you were born. So like, how did you get into ska music? I mean, is ska bigger in the Boston area than in other parts of the country because of the mighty, mighty Boston's. So that's not the reason. So that there, I was trying to think about this, you know, I think there's two ways I can kind of trace back my love of ska music. And it goes back to my, one of my friends, Aiden, uh, you know, a lifelong friend of mine. So he had a record player in his basement. So we would go down there, you know, in high school or in middle school or whatever, and like hang out, play video games. And we'd always put on, you know, some of his old records like that his parents owned. And, one of them was The Clash, uh, London Calling. And now, obviously, The Clash isn't, you know, pertained to ska music, but there are some similarities with the way that the artists play the music using instrumentals. And the other part of it was I played the trombone in, in from grade school up to high school. So the trombone is obviously an instrument that is used a lot in ska music, especially with the way that you can slur the slide up and down it's very unique to the other instruments, you know, using legato tonguing and things like that. So I, I grew up with a background in music and specifically in instrumentals. So whenever we would play certain music in, you know, band class, you know, I was also in like the pep band, I was in the jazz band. So I got, so there was like a natural carry over to the music I would already like listen to because I would want to play, you know, things that we would practice in band, but I also want to kind of expand my horizon on like, what are other things I can play with the trombone? Like, I like obviously stuff that's more like fast tempo. I mean, you can only play the scale so many times before you like get sick of them. You're like, all right, I need to find another way to like, you know, be energetic and, and, and be, you know, play loud, you know, with the trombone is obviously one of the loudest acoustical instruments only behind the gong. So I, I think that, the trombone really kind of introduced me into the ska brand. And a lot of my, some of my friends, again, I bring up my friend Aiden again, like he was really into it as well. And he kind of introduced me to it and then started listening to it. And you're like, wow, like I like this, uh, this fast tempo. I like the instruments. There was a connection there with playing the trombone. So I could relate to, you know, the song in that way. And I also think too, when you, when I like look back, you know, obviously I spent a lot of my childhood days, you know, in middle school and high school, like playing video games and, whether it be like Tony Hawk or Madden games, like a constant theme in a lot of those games was there's always have soundtracks with ska music in them. So in the background, I would like unconsciously be like soaking in like 
Sublime, Street Life Manifesto, Goldfinger, Less Than Jake, like without even knowing it and being like, oh man, these tunes like rock. It would obviously kind of bring you back to a time, a nostalgic feeling where you're like, oh man, like I remember, you know, you know, skating and Tony Hawk and listening to, you know, this really upbeat ska music. And half the time I was like, I didn't even know the names of the songs or the artists. It's like, oh man, like I, I've heard this song before. And so it just kind of brings me back to a place that I really liked and enjoyed. Um, just only really good memories from listening to ska music. Oh, that's cool. And it is a, a great showcase for the trombone. And uh, it's cool that you kind of got your introduction to it from The Clash, who do have some great ska music on London Calling, one of the great albums of all time. Uh, Rudy Can't Fail, oh, Revolution yeah. <laughs> Rock, um, just great ska songs within that. And, and, you know, The Clash played with so many different styles on that album. Just a total showcase. Uh, that's really cool, man. Um, and we will obviously be comparing notes on ska music for years to come, <laughs> which I look forward to. All right, Erickson, what did you make of the Malik Willis slide? Certainly one of the biggest storylines of the first two days of the draft. Yeah, it was definitely definitely a big surprise because, I mean, we saw this guy going potentially like top 10. We couldn't see teams passing him up. It seemed like at least like a lock for the first round. But the fact of the matter was we kind of all we kind of all knew in the back of our minds that we knew he was like a raw prospect and we knew that he probably shouldn't start immediately. And the NFL clearly showed us that they value guys that have that starting capability from the get go. And I think the consensus was that Pickett, at least in my opinion, Pickett was clearly the most NFL ready quarterback, you know, based on the fact that he just played a lot of games at Pitt and he was just the most NFL ready, like the guy that could start from day one. And then Desmond Ritter going as a second quarterback, he was viewed as the next quarterback. Again, a guy that played four years, you know, at Cincinnati. So it makes sense to an extent we look back and think, okay, that's why these quarterbacks went ahead and why Malik Willis, because I think that, you know, I, I, we obviously as fantasy players, you know, fall in love with like the upside, the upside, the upside. And that's like, that's kind of like, we almost kind of like get consumed by it and we don't even care about the floor, but it's like, if you're an NFL franchise, like Malik Willis has a scary floor too. And I think that the Trey Lance thing last year may have gotten teams off of Malik Willis a little bit more because Trey Lance, I think had some similarities to Malik Willis where you had the rushing upside, but you had some rawness, you know, the guy didn't play a lot, you know, his last year at the collegiate level because of COVID. And then he didn't play at like really much at all in his first year. And I think teams are looking at like, so like the 49ers traded like a boatload of picks for this first round Trey Lance guy. And he barely played. So like we're expecting to do something similar. We're going to draft Malik Willis in the first round after Trey Lance, who was viewed as a better prospect than Malik Willis. He could barely get on the field. So I think that teams were like, oh no, like we can't take this guy in the first round because like he's not going to be an immediate contributor. Like he has to be a guy that has to sit and teams just weren't willing to spend up for a player that is more or less going to be on the bench for year one. So what are you doing with him in your uh, dynasty rankings and especially super flex where, you know, quarterback is of the utmost importance like do you still think there's this lofty upside there or was that being overblown do you still have him ahead of Kenny Pickett have you moved him down below any of the other quarterbacks in this class how are you treating him no so I definitely moved him down I think that he's now like ranked in the back end of like the first round for me um so I do think that there is still some upside he's, he's still firmly behind Kenny Pickett and I want to be clear you know in a one quarterback league I, I would still rather prefer to take Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett and bet on the upside, especially because it's a one quarterback league, like having the difference maker quarterback matters significantly more. Whereas Kenny Pickett has way more value in a two quarterback league because he's going to, he's going to actually play games. Like he's going to be a starter for the Pittsburgh Steelers, whether he's good or not, like there's a commitment by the team for taking him in the first round that he's going to play games. And he's someone that you can play 
in your quarterback two slot. So I think that's important to note that you sh- your you know your rankings from quarterbacks, especially in dynasty, should not be the same from a super flex perspective to a one quarterback because you're really approaching the position so differently. Like because you can get guys off the waiver wire in, in one quarterback leagues, like that you can just kind of plug and play. Like obviously that's not the case in two quarterback leagues, and it's fine to guy get a guy a floor player like a Kenny Pickett where you're just looking for a guy to start games. Like you have your difference maker, a Kyler Murray, a Justin Herbert in your quarterback one slot. So going with Kenny Pickett in a two quarterback league, I think makes a lot of sense. So in a one quarterback league though, I do think that there is the upside there. Even if he doesn't play the season, you look at Ryan Tannehill, he's got a massive contract hit the net over the next two years. He's actually the most expensive player this year is like making $35 million. So I can't imagine we see Michael Malik Willis play at all this season, unless Ryan Tannehill gets hurt. But if Ryan Tannehill struggles again, you know, especially which is in the cards now, I mean, they took away his best wide receiver and, you know, adding in a rookie like Traylon Burks, again, it's not going to necessarily be an immediate fix. Like AJ Brown was a freak and, and one of the best wide receivers in the NFL and expecting Burks to just come in and, and do that. I mean, a lot of teams are banking on this Justin Jefferson, Stefan Diggs corollary where, Oh, they traded Diggs, they draft Jefferson and he becomes, you know, a better version, younger version of Diggs. Um, that's not going to happen with all these rookie receivers. Like, I'm sorry. It's just, it's just not going to happen. Now, one of them maybe could happen, um, but that's the approach a lot of teams are following. So I do think Tannehill is potentially a guy that the Titans could move on from. And then you have Malik Willis entering year two with a season under his belt as an NFL quarterback, you know, learning under Ryan Tannehill. I think that could be really valuable. And just looking at the fact that Trey Lance last year, you know, he's still really valuable in Superflex leagues and he did really nothing last year. So that's kind of the way I think about it in Dynasty is trying to like take away like the player and what I think about the player and kind of think about it from a market perspective. Like, I think that the market is still going to be high relatively on Malik Willis, which is why I'm still going to value him high as well, because I think that he's not going to lose a lot of value if he doesn't play all year because people are going to just obsess about the rushing. So if you end up drafting him at the end of the first round, your Superflex league, and then Tannehill ends up leaving, you could just flip him if you don't even want him anymore and you just gain a profit. So I think that the fact that Trey Lance has retained so much value when we still don't even know, we still have not gotten zero confirmation that he's the starting quarterback for the 49ers. The fact that he is still like a top six, like ADP quarterback is gives me hope that Malik Willis with a similar skill set does have the ability to gain value um, over the next year, even if he doesn't play a lot or at all. I mean, it, t- it takes one preseason game fits one preseason game, Malik Willis, like running some guy over and he's just going to, his ADP is just going to rock it up because like, oh, Tannehill's dust. Uh, Malik Willis is going to be the starter in next year. And then even if you don't like Malik, you can flip him. You know, you can get the value, I think, from Malik Willis. Yeah, that rushing value is going to last even if he doesn't play for two years. It's not going to melt away like Jordan Love's value. Like there's still going to be the anticipation of what could happen if he gets in there and starts running around. Um, all right, before we go, Erickson, we have to talk about running backs. What's your interpretation of how this Brees Hall, Michael Carter thing is going to go down? All right. So, uh, Pat, I think that you're familiar with a, a certain, uh, you know, super productive athletic running back that went at the top of the second round and went to an offense that was notorious, notorious for using running backs by committee. Um, uh, Mr. Jonathan Taylor went to the Colts and, uh, yeah, you know, Frank Reich, oh, like Marlon Mack, Naeem Hines, and that did not matter whatsoever. And I'm seeing this this take on you know social media about Brees Hall going to a, a Shanahan style offense where they you know kind of mix up running backs and they use multiple running backs. But th- like Shanahan never drafted a running back this high, so like I, I I don't think that they're following the same type of route. You know, the Jets literally said they would have taken Brees Hall in the first round, 
and they took him right at the beginning of the second round. So I, I really don't think that we should be viewing Brees Hall as like, oh, he went in round two. Like, he's not a round one running back. Like, look, let's be honest. Like, we, we all know that round two running backs are this day age is, you know, round one running backs. Like, if the Jets had another pick, you know, in round one, they would have taken Brees Hall. So I, I kind of view him in that light as a, a round one running back. And round one running backs get volume. And, and that's how it's always been. Um, when you invest so much into a running back. So Michael Carter, look, Michael Carter still split the backfield last year when Tevin Coleman was healthy. Like they clearly don't want Michael Carter to be the guy there. And I think that he's a backup. Like, I think he's a straight handcuff to Brees Hall. Yeah. Maybe he works in, you know, here or there, but I think it's the Brees Hall show and I'm not backing down for Hall as the one-on-one guy for me, because he's a rookie running back. That's super young, athletic, has three down skill set. Yes, like the big question mark is the Jets offense. Like that's like the, oh, like how's the Jets offense going to be? But if he's going to get volume, then it doesn't matter. Like we saw this last year with Najee Harris. It's like the dude got the volume and was spectacular because of it. And there's a chance considering how much the Jets have poured into this offense. Like I don't mind like betting on Zach Wilson taking a second year leap. Like that happens a lot with a lot of quarterbacks. And there's reason to believe Zach Wilson could be better because the Jets have literally improved everywhere on, on their offense. So I, I think that the, if the offense can be better, I think that Brees Hall can be the guy. And, you know, even if the Jets defense, and the thing is too, is like Brees Hall catches passes. Like that's such a huge thing. So you don't need to be worried about, oh, well, the Jets are going to be blowing out a bunch of games and never going to have the lead. Uh, he's going to catch passes. So for me, Brees Hall, I view him basically as a, a pseudo round one running back. And I think that he's going to be the guy in, in gang green. So I, I'm really high on Brees Hall. He's your 101 in all dynasty rookie drafts. Yep. Is he a third rounder in redraft? I think that I ended up putting him somewhere. I think he's like in my top 15. I think he's like 15 for me. So I think that round three is yeah. probably where he would shake out in terms of like my overall rankings. I, I am interested to see like what the market does. Cause, cause it's important again, like do not doing what Belichick did. I'm not like, you know, I'm taking Brees Hall no matter what, like, if he gets up being, you know, a first round pick, like, okay, maybe then I'll be more hesitant. It's like, I, I wouldn't take him, you know, further ahead of where I took Najee Harris last year. Cause it was much more concrete that we were going to get Najee Harris as a, you know, a ultimate bell cow, just because of Mike Tomlin's history. The fact they had nobody else in that backfield, but I think the market also knows that and, and they're not going to juice up Reese Hall's price to that extent. But I know at the end of the day, like third round, I mean, Jonathan Taylor is a rookie. I was taking him in the third round. So yeah, I, I mean, Brees Hall, I think that he would be a guy that I would definitely want to target in a third round of redraft leagues. And I agree he's worth it. Like, this is his show, and I'm a Michael Carter guy, and his value just got completely torpedoed, and I acknowledge that. <laughs> There's no way he is splitting work with Brees Hall. That's just not happening. Um, you seem not quite as smitten with Kenneth Walker. The third, I know our colleague uh, Derek Brown actually had Walker ranked higher pre-draft pre than Hall. Is it more about the player or the landing spot in Seattle for you with Kenneth Walker three? And I know you're not, I'm not saying you hate him or anything, but I know you're maybe a little bit lower than consensus. I just think that Kenneth Walker's game doesn't reflect well in the game that we play in fantasy football. Like he's a better, I feel like we're going to talk about Kenneth Walker in the same ilk that we talk about Nick Chubb whenever we're trying to defend Nick Chubb in fantasy. Like, oh, well, Nick Chubb's like the best pure rusher in the NFL. And then he's RB12 in fantasy. Because the fact that, that because he is so good as a rusher and so efficient as a rusher that he doesn't get involved in the passing game. And that's so huge. We play in PPR leagues. Like we need to understand that you can be higher on a guy in real life and think Kenneth Walker is a better running back than Brees Hall in real life. 
but that doesn't mean he's a better running back in fantasy football. Like Najee Harris is not like a top five running back in the NFL, in my opinion, but it's really hard to get away from being a top five running back in fantasy football because of how much work he gets, how many dump off passes he catches and, and the volume that he commands in that offense. But he more or less like he's not like Najee Harris is like some super explosive running back. Like he's he's OK, but I mean, he's just so well-rounded enough to get all that volume that just soaks up fantasy points. So for me, it's like Kenneth Walker, the biggest question mark with him was coming out is, OK, you know, what's the pass catcher work going to look like? Like and that's super crucial in fantasy football. Obviously, I talked about Brees Hall being a guy that you know, caught over 80 passes at the college level. He's someone that I believe can make that leap with the New York Jets. But Kenneth Walker. I mean, look, didn't show it at college, at the college level that he could catch passes. And he literally gets drafted by the team that finished dead last in targets to running backs last season. 30th running back target share for the Seattle Seahawks. Now, I, I posted that on Twitter. And, you know, people have pointed out to me that, you know, Russell Wilson wasn't really a great screen thrower, which I agree with. But look, I mean, Drew Locke, Geno Smith, like, why are we trying to get, why are we trying to talk ourselves into guys on bad offenses? Like, that was one of my biggest takeaways when you just, like, look back at the, picks that nuke your draft you just drafted players on bad teams because you were trying to make the case for oh why why can this player overcome the situation why can this player overcome this situation it's like or you could just draft guys on good teams like and not have to like bet on a guy trying to overcome the situation like use the situation as a leverage to make that player better so and you'll find too that there are guys that you can get that are way cheaper than you know kenneth walker or guys in bad situations that are also in bad situations like i, I don't want to pay for overpay for a guy where i could literally see him playing on the worst offense in the nfl like that's just not appealing to me i don't know what seattle's doing from a quarterback standpoint um the fact that they're like competent with going with drew lock and geno smith just like doesn't have me hopeful that they know what they're doing i mean they had a chance to take malik willis multiple times and i wouldn't mind especially like I mean, I thought they would have taken him in the second round. They didn't take him then. They didn't take him in the third round. So I got a lot of question marks about like where the Seattle Seahawks offense is going. And I mean, Pete Carroll, yeah, loves to run the football. But I mean, Kenneth Walker is going to have to get 20 carries and get over 100 rushing yards every single week for him to be worthwhile in fantasy because I don't know how many passes he's going to catch. They're still going to rotate guys around with Rashad Penny, with DJ Dallas, with you know whoever guy they sign at the street that they just like obsess over because, oh, they're like, this guy's a grinder. So I just, I just have a lot of like red flags with Kenneth Walker. And I mean, the fact that I've seen him go like one Oh three is like, I mean, what, what did you say that the ADP was for Walker, um, in the early ADP stuff? Oh, uh, I missed that, but I think it still was one Oh three. I think he was, uh, in between London and Traylon Burks. Yeah. Like that's way too expensive for me. Like I would, I would feel so much better just taking one of the receivers that went in the first round. Like I just, I, it's too, it's too much for me. I just, I, I, yeah, that's way too much of a price for me to pay. Yeah. Valid concerns for sure. Uh, one last thing before I let you go, Erickson, it was kind of an ambiguous running back group after, uh, Hall and Walker. And we knew landing spots were going to play a big role in determining their value. Uh, as we talked about earlier in the show, ecosystem seems to matter a lot more for these rookie running backs than for the wide receivers where you just have to defer to talent. Uh, so who do you think were the lottery winners at running back? Who landed in really good spots that kind of have you more excited about them than you were heading into the draft? Yeah, so I got three guys, so I'll hit them briefly. So James Cook, I think in, in Buffalo is is awesome. And honestly, you know, I have James Cook ranked ahead of Kenneth Walker because I think that his landing spot is just so great for his skill set. He's got more explosive upside than Zach Moss or Devin Singletary. They can be the grinder backs 
And it's going back to, you know, who's going to be better in fantasy football? Like James Cook is what you want from a fantasy football running back, a guy that catches passes and a guy that's explosive. Like that's the two things I'm, I'm gravitating towards. Yes, he doesn't have like the uber size that he's going to touch the ball 300 times. But the fact that he's in an explosive offense, he's going to be used in the passing game like he was at Georgia. And the fact that he doesn't have a lot of wear and tear on the tires like we see from a lot of these Georgia running backs. I know people are looking at James Cook and they're saying, oh, well, they didn't use him like this at Georgia. It's like, dude, like they rotate back to Georgia like since the beginning of time. Like they, they never use one guy at Georgia. Um, it's always been a rotational approach. And whenever they come into the NFL, they always seem to have no higher upside than they were used at the collegiate level. So I just think James Cook is a, a big riser for me. Damian Pierce landing in Houston. I never understood the the Marlon Mack hype for, you know, a couple of weeks in best ball formats when he signed a contract for $2 million, which was less guaranteed money than Rex Burkhead. Pierce was the PFF's highest grade running back last year, despite seeing hundred carries. I get that's that that's the complaint with Damian Pierce. He never like saw the workload, but this goes back to, I think, Fitz, I think that you mentioned this when I mentioned Damian Pierce like earlier in a tweet like a couple months back, like during the pre-draft process. You know, Pierce never topped 106 carries in college, but it's like, dude, like Dan Mullen, the Gators head coach, was a donkey. Like the dude didn't know what he <laughs> yes. was freaking doing. Like he didn't know how to use Kadarius Tony the right way. And we saw Tony obviously, you know, blow up at the NFL level in the couple of games that he was healthy last year. He should have been getting more targets on the offense. And Pierce, the only two games he had double-digit carries at the last year of college was after Dan Mullen got fired. So it's like he was just using him the wrong way. And we've seen this before with guys where it's like Jalen Hurd was, you know, putting Alvin Kamara on the bench at running back. And it's like, yeah, that coach is just an idiot. Like, like he's not using these players the right way. So that's my argument to, you know, the fact that he never, you know, topped over 106 carries in college, you know, looking at his size, you know, over 220 pounds, 5'10". Like Damian Pierce clearly looks like a guy that can handle a, a workload. And then the last guy is Tyler Algier, um, fifth round pick from BYU to the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, news break, Mike Davis got released by the Falcons. Pour one yes. out for uh, for Big Mike. But Algier, you know, was mega productive at BYU. And, and honestly, before, you know, when I did my initial running back rankings for the rookies, you know, before I really dove into anything, Algier, just looking at like his production profile, he was a guy that I ranked like RB three in this class. So I was like really high on him, you know, coming in and obviously things got adjusted based on more research, looking at, you know, where the projected draft capital was. So he ended up moving down my rankings, but he was someone I always was like marking as a guy. I really want to see where Algier lands because I think that the way that he's built, you know, first and rushing yards after contact, second rushing touchdowns, third PFF rushing grade among FBS players with at least 150 carries over the last two seasons. And he also set career highs in receptions and target share last season so he went in the fifth round he's on a backfield that's pretty wide open you know releasing mike davis we'll see if they add another veteran but you know cordero patterson damien williams quadre allison like none of those guys have carried a workload like ever um patterson i mean patterson's kind of like a low-key winner because that didn't really add a lot of running back so be interested to see but we know patterson's not a guy that's going to carry 200 touches or 200 carries i should say damien williams has been you know an afterthought by all nfl offenses um, and it's funny because Algier's profile honestly reminds me a lot of Khalil Herbert and a guy that went, you know, late on day three, but it's just like this yards after the contact machine. And that's what Algier is. And we saw Khalil Herbert obviously just plant, um, Damien Williams last year. So that would not surprise me at all to see Algier be their guy, um, in this backfield as they're, you know, they're a rebuilding team and, you know, if they're going to draft a running back, they might as well draft a running back that has rushing yards after contact and can create yards because their offensive line sucks. Like it's not a good offensive line in Atlanta. So Algier can be that guy that they run between the tackles, give him a lot of carries that 
can can make stuff happen out of nothing because I don't think there are going to be a lot of wide, wide open lanes for him in Atlanta, you know, with Marcus Mariota. And I just think he's a guy that at the end of the day, we could see him have a similar, you know, volume load as like Kenneth Walker, but he's going to cost like literally nothing of the price. And I don't necessarily think he's their long-term answer at, at the, with the Falcons, you know, similar to like a Michael Carter, where you just don't want to trust like in these day three running backs that, you know, have like, okay, rookie years. You know, he was someone that I would try to draft and try to immediately flip after the season ends after he has a, you know, semi-productive year. Cause I know that Atlanta has four rounds to replace this guy. Like they probably will. So that's something to keep in mind, but like from a redraft perspective and from a dynasty, if you're looking for someone that can immediately contribute, I think Algier from the Falcons, I think is a guy to keep an eye on. Yeah, good spot for him. Good chance to get a foothold right away. He's going to be a committee back at minimum, possibly with the chance for more. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, that's Andrew Erickson of Fantasy Pros. Find him on Twitter at Andrew Erickson underscore. And be sure to check out his NFL grades for his scorching hot takes on everything that transpired over the weekend. Erickson, once again, congrats on the engagement. Uh, Glad you eventually made it back home from Aruba. Thanks for coming on, buddy. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. And that's all for this week. My thanks once again to our guest, Andrew Erickson. Find him on Twitter at Andrew Erickson underscore. The producer of Fits on Fantasy is Calm Kelly. Find him on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. The music is provided by International Jet Sets. And of course, my thanks to all of you for listening. Please come back again next week when I'll be joined by another great guest. Until then, so long, everyone. I've got a head.